Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Happy day to you. I hope you're doing well. All right. Let's give you a little bit of context for Doctrine and Covenants section 124 when the saints are in Nauvoo, Illinois. So when last we left off, Joseph Smith had been arrested and thrown into Liberty Jail. That leaves Emma Smith to fend for her own with four small children. So it's particularly trying. In February, she leaves Missouri and begins her trek hundreds of miles across Missouri with four small children to take care of. She is the one that has the care. She's protecting the the Bible, Joseph Smith translation manuscripts. She's got them hidden under her skirts. When they arrive at the Mississippi River, it's so cold that the Mississippi River itself is frozen over. Uh, You can walk on it. You can even drive a wagon on it, but she's worried about the weight of her wagon. So she and the children uh, kind of slide across the ice walking. She has one kid on each hip in her arms and another two holding on to her skirt. On the other side of the Mississippi River, she and the other saints find temporary refuge with the, the people of Quincy, Illinois. Now, Quincy, Illinois is a stop on the Underground Railroad. And there's only about 1,600 people that live there and about 10,000 Latter-day Saints coming out of Missouri. But they do everything in their power in Quincy to help us survive. Uh, So much so that that when um, Gordon B. Hinckley talks about the people of Quincy, he says, In the annals of our church and and the city of Quincy and its citizens will always occupy a position of the highest esteem. We shall always be grateful for the kindness, the hospitality, and the civility with which your people met our people who were exiles from the state of Missouri. All right. Meanwhile, back in Missouri on Saturday, April 6th, 1839, Joseph and the other prisoners from Liberty were sent to Gallatin in Davies County to stand trial. Now, even after four months of captivity, Joseph is still mild-mannered, cheerful, happy, and so, like, during one of the court recesses, um, they, they, the guards say, Joseph, we know you l- like a good man-to-man wrestling match. How about you grapple with John Brassfield? Uh, he was one of the guards. He's known to be the strongest man in Davies County. Joseph's like, no, no, I don't want you to think less of me as a prophet. And, but they're like, no, we won't. So Joseph agrees. And even being malnourished, coming straight out of jail, Joseph chucks John Brassfield several times in succession and everybody's like dang the trial itself is a joke the judge thomas c birch had been the chief prosecuting attorney against the latter-day saints in their initial hearing back in november the men who guarded them are the same men who sat as jurors um At least three of the jurors had been part of the vigilante force that had slaughtered people at Hans Mill. When we call witnesses for the defense like Stephen Markham, he's physically assaulted after he witnesses uh, in favor of Joseph Smith. Adding to this, some jury members are treating this like an all-inclusive vacation and they drink so much that they pass out in the middle of the session and had to be carried incoherent from the court session. Because it's such a hot mess, Joseph's defense attorney requests requests from the judge a change of venue. So Judge Birch upheld the request and moves the trial to Boone County, which is in the center of the state of Missouri. 
Now, this second trial is just really never going to happen for at least two reasons. First, how can the state actively incarcerate and prosecute only the Latter-day Saints without taking similar action against the Missourians? Especially since it's well known that the Missourians had been involved in illegal activities and had committed terrible crimes against the state. Uh, against the saints, not the state, sorry. Second, well, well some approved of Governor Lilburn Boggs' actions, the entire Latter-day Saint affair was essentially an embarrassment of the Boggs administration. And the entire state would just rather be rid of the whole affair and just see it off. So as Joseph and the other prisoners are traveling to the new location in Boone County, after four days of traveling, on Tuesday, April 16th, uh, the guard and the prisoners stop for the night at a location near what is called Yellow Creek in Sherrington County. Here, one of their guards, uh, uh, a guy named Sheriff Morgan, tells Lyman White that he wished he was at home and that he wished that Lyman was at home too. He goes on and he says, by God, I shall not go much further. Hiram says that the Morgan told him that Judge Birch instructed him never to carry us to Boone County, essentially like, take him to Boone County, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So earlier that day, the Latter-day Saint prisoners had purchased a jug of whiskey, which they gifted to the five guards. Three of the guards, Hiram says, drank pretty freely of the whiskey and went to bed and were soon asleep. Shortly afterwards, Sheriff Morgan tells the group, he's like, I'm going to have a good drink of grog and go to bed, and you may do what you have a mind to do. Then he and another guard provided them with two horses, helped them load the animals with their um, belongings, and then Joseph Smith wrote that, quote, the guard got intoxicated and we thought it a favorable opportunity to make our escape, end quote. It's kind of always subtle and low-key on these sorts of things. My favorite quote, though, about it is from Hiram. He says, we took our change of venue to the state of Illinois. As they're traveling across Missouri incognito, they try and hide their identity because they don't want to get recaptured and thrown into jail. One night, they stay with a farmer. And the next morning, the farmer engages one of the prisoners, Alexander McCray, in a conversation. And he says, what was your name again? But Alexander McCray, his mind just goes blank and he can't remember the fake name he had used with his farmer. Now, wanting to arouse suspicion, he immediately diverts the farmer's question by pretending to be ill with a stomach cramp. Fortunately, the distraction worked and the concerned farmer went and sought out the other prison escaped prisoners and Joseph and the other guys come over. And they're, as soon as they see him, they're like, Mr. Brown. What's the matter with you? What have you been eating? Then they remind him of his fictitious name, and Alexander suddenly begins to feel better. Well, the farmer says, hey, we don't know what's going around, and so he gives everybody a shot of whiskey just in case the contagion is, uh, in case the sickness is contagious. Oh no, shot of whiskey, keep the doctor away. Anyways, while Joseph and the others are sneaking out of Missouri, Brigham and Apostles are sneaking into Missouri. Brigham was never arrested. He, he honestly is one of the main forces organizing the Latter-day Saints to escape Missouri. He does a lot of powerful things, even sometimes dressing up like it as an old lady or an old man to, to avoid capture and to help usher the Latter-day Saints out of Missouri. So he worked so hard to get out of Missouri. Why would Brigham and other Apostles be sneaking into Missouri? 
Well, it has to do with what it says back in Doctrine and Covenants 118. In verse 4, it says, Next spring, let the apostles go over the great waters, meaning to England, and promulgate my gospel and the fullness thereof and bear record of my name. It goes on to say, Let them take leave of my saints in the city of Far West on the 26th day of April next, um, meaning 1839, on the building spot of my house, saith the Lord. So, I don't know, maybe God um, would have been forgiving if they're like, hey, we've just been driven from the state. There's no possible way that we can leave from the temple site. But Brigham and the other apostles are determined to be obedient. So they sneak into Missouri. And then on the day they are supposed to leave from the site, they start right at midnight on April 26. Um, they go to the far west temple site. They relay the, the large stone of the southwest southeast corner. They ordain Wilford Woodruff and George A. Smith as, to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, sing some hymns, preach, and then as it's getting light, they get the heck out of there. And just for good measure, they knock on apostate Isaac Russell's door to let him know that the, the prophecy had been fulfilled, suck on that, and then book it back to Illinois. So once we're back into Illinois, where do the saints live? Now, you know they settle in Nauvoo, but why Nauvoo? Well, it happens has to do with like kind of this larger space I don't know, um, speculation that is going on all throughout Western America at this time. Uh, a lot of people are trying to get rich through real estate investment. And you have two investors, a guy named A. White and JBTs, that look at a map of Illinois and see uh, a bend in the Mississippi River. And so without ever going to this bend of the Mississippi River, they buy the land. But... Um, Five years later, the land that they have bought is not prospering like they thought it was. They, they thought the bend in the river would cause riverboats to stop by. They named the, the city aspirationally commerce, that it will be a, a commercial success. But the reason that it's not a commercial success is that they never went there. And they never found out that the whole place is just a malarial swamp. So they're trying to dump the land. They get a real estate agent named Isaac Galland. Isaac Galland sees all of these people needing homes. So he uh, approaches church leaders and offers them a deal to the land in commerce and some of the land across the river in the Iowa Territory. And so the church leaders buy the land because that's all they can afford. But Joseph, I love Joseph. When he arrives in June... He takes a look at the plot and he renames this malarial mud swamp Nauvoo, meaning beautiful in Hebrew. Now, he may have named it beautiful, but it was still infested with mosquitoes and therefore epidemics of cholera, malaria, typhoid regularly swept through their community. Some of the afflicted became so sick during that summer that they could only crawl around as they, they tried to help each other and many died. It, it was a very heavy time. Eventually, Joseph Smith himself became ill. But after several days of confinement, on July 22nd, he's had enough. He stands up and, and he calls on others to arise and use the priesthood to help him. Wilford Woodruff calls it the God's day of power right there. He just basically just administers to everybody sick in his house, everybody sick camped out in his yard. And then he, he just walks up like Henry G. Sherwood is near death. Joseph stands at the door of his tent and commands him to rise and come out. He obeys and he's healed. One crazy instance is when they go to Elijah Fordham's house. 
Elijah is, is so sick. His skin is ashen. His wife is crying as she sews his burial clothing. Joseph approaches Elijah and says, Brother Fordham, have you not faith to be healed? And Brother Fordham just replies, I'm afraid it's too late. Do you not believe that Jesus is the Christ? I do, Brother Joseph. Elijah, Joseph says, I command you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to arise and to be made whole. Uh, he says the, the, the words seem to shake at the house. Elijah rises up, his face flush with color, gets dressed, asks for something to eat, and follows Joseph outside to minister to others and lives for basically another 50 years. Amazing, right? Now, I told you that, that Brigham had left for his mission. So they leave from their mission in Missouri and then stop by back home in Iowa and Illinois to head off from their mission and promptly catch malaria. But they are determined, Brigham, Heber, and others, to go despite the fact that they are so sick. And um, Brigham's wife, Marianne, is just ride or die. She is in it. And she says, go and fulfill your mission and the Lord bless you. I'll do the best I can for myself and my children. So Brigham leaves on his mission, but a few days later, Marianne learns that he basically made it as far as the Kimball's house on the other side of the Mississippi River before collapsing from exhaustion. So she crosses over to take care of him, and she finds that the whole Kimball household is just desperately sick. The four-year-old is the one taking water to everybody and running the story. And if you've raised four-year-olds, you can imagine what kind of a desperate situation that is. But even though it's crazy, Brigham is still wants to go. So Brigham and Heber call a wagon to take them away. And they basically drag themselves for the wagon and collapse in the back. Like Brigham tries in vain to look healthy as he says, says goodbye. His sister Fanny is like, what are you doing? And he's like, I've never felt better in my life. And Fanny, is, Fanny Brigham's sister, is like, you are a liar. As they ride away, um, they're, they're just... Heber just is like, this is tough. He's like, let's give them a cheer. And you got this iconic moment in missionary work where sick with malaria, Brigham and, and Heber stand up and they shout out, hurrah, hurrah for Israel. That's oh, a good moment, man. It's a good moment. Now, as they travel, Brigham and Heber travel together and they start out with $13.50. And and they keep drawing on that $13.50. And they eventually use that $13.50 to buy more than $87 worth of coach fares and tickets. You do the math there. They both feel like it's a miracle. Once they get to England, they continue some of the massive success that Heber C. Kimball had started. For example, Wilford Woodruff is serving with the, these other apostles in England. And uh, he's having a lot of success, but one day at a meeting, uh, he's inspired to go further south to a place called Her Herefordshire. And so he asks one of his converts, William Benbow, to go with him. As they go, they just go and contact William's brother and sister-in-law, John and Jane Benbow, who just happen to be a member of a group of 600 people who have formed their own religious society called the United Brethren, who are basically seeking the restoration of the gospel, priesthood, all of this. And w w um, Wilford comes in, he's like, well, I have a message for you. And in a matter of weeks, all but one of the 600 members accept the restored gospel and are baptized. There are hundreds of others in the vicinity are baptized. 
through Wilford uh, Woodruff's efforts and, and those that support him in that area, 1,800 people are converted in a three-county area. I basically like your mission right there. Massively important, massively successful. Meanwhile, back in Nauvoo, they do what Latter-day Saints do. They drain the swamp and build a beautiful city and begin construction of the temple. That fall, hoping for official government help from the the pain that they have suffered, um, Joseph takes 678 sworn statements documenting the abuses that the saints had suffered in Missouri documenting all the property they had lost to uh, the Missourians, and he goes to present it to the government. Heck, he goes to present it straight up to the President of the United States. He literally walks up to the White House, knocks on the door, and sits down with President Martin Van Buren. Joseph uh, presents him this stack of petitions and, and asks for help. Van Buren, though, is facing an election year and doesn't even look at the petitions. He just says, help you? How can I help you? I can do nothing for you, gentlemen. If I were for you, I would go against the whole state of Missouri and that state would go against me in the next election. Your cause is just, but I can do nothing for you. Well, he's worried about the election. P.S., just so you know, he, does, he loses the next election to William Henry Harrison, who's too dumb to wear a hat in the rain and gets sick and dies 31 days into his presidency. Several years later, remember that phrase, your cause is just, but I can do nothing, nothing for you. Several years later, Wilford Woodruff is in the St. George Temple. And he has a vision where the signers of the Declaration of the Independence come to him and, and just say, hey, you have had the work of the endowment house for years, but you have done nothing for us. In response to this vision, Wilford Woodruff says, quote, I straightway went into the baptismal font and called upon Brother McAllister to baptize me for the signers of the Declaration of Independence and 50 other eminent men, making 100 in all, including John Wesley, Columbus, and others. I then baptized him for every president of the United States except three. You want to make any guesses which one of those three is? Because mm-hmm. he drops this line next. And when their cause is just, somebody will do the work for them, end quote. <laughs> Interesting, right? Well, as they're, they're getting set up in the spring of 1840, after Joseph returns um, from his unsuccessful visit um, to the White House, which in part is going to inspire him to run for president of the United States later, you get a new guy on the scene named John C. Bennett. He's been a very successful guy um, in setting up... Um, militias and he's a doctor and he's got some good political connections so he helps the 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 city of Nauvoo draft a city charter and his connections help to push it through and make Nauvoo um, an official place he's going to become mayor of um, the the city and have a lot of other important duties one of the commanding generals in the Nauvoo legion um But I just want you to stick a pin in that because we're going to come back to John C. Bennett later on. But just know that he enters the story right here. At the the turn of the new year in 1841, it's been a while since Joseph published an official revelation. And so now, uh, after almost a couple of years of just Joseph teaching instead of publishing revelations, we get section 124. And since it's been so long, section 124 is kind of 
an everything catch-all revelation. The first 11 verses talk about how they need to form an official proclamation to send to the whole, the whole world. Then you've got a section that gives counsel, correction, and commendation to specific individuals. You get instruction for building the Nauvoo house, instructions for building the Nauvoo temple, procedures regarding baptism for the dead, reorganization of the first presidency, and then naming of general officers, priest of quorum presidencies, and the Nauvoo stake high council. So you got a lot of things. Here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the first bit. 124 verse 2 and 3. I say unto you that you are now called immediately to make a solemn proclamation of my gospel. This proclamation shall be made to all the kings of the world, to the four corners thereof, to the honorable president-elect and the high-minded governors of the nation in which you live, and to all the nations of the earth scattered abroad. So make a proclamation of the government, right? Well, what's the proclamation going to say? Well, verse 11, Awake, O kings of the earth, come ye, O come ye with your gold and your silver to help my people to the house of the daughters of Zion. Well, why does God want them to bring their gold and their silver? That's clarified over in verse 31. To build a house unto me, and I grant unto you sufficient time to build a house unto me. Why is this such a big deal? Every place they go, Kirtland, uh, Jackson, um, far west, God emphasizes building this house. Well, why is it such a big deal? He gives an answer here starting in verse 34. For therein, in the house of the Lord, in the temple, are the keys of the holy priesthood ordained, that you may receive honor and glory. Verse 37, And again, verily I say unto you, how shall your washings be acceptable unto me, except you perform them in a house which you built unto my name? For, for this cause I commanded Moses that he should build a tabernacle, that they should bear it with them in the wilderness, and to build a house in the land of promise, that those ordinances might be revealed, which had been hid from before the world was. And verily I say unto you, let this house be built unto my name, that I may reveal my ordinances therein unto my people. For I deign to reveal unto my church things which have been kept hid from before the foundation of the world, things that pertain to the dispensation of the fullness of times. And I will show unto my servant Joseph all things pertaining to this house, and the priesthood thereof, and the place whereon it should be built." Verse 55, and again, verily I say unto you, I command you again to build a house to my name, even in this place that you may prove yourselves unto me that you are faithful in all things, whatever I command you, and that I may bless you and crown you in, uh, with honor, immortality, and an or, an, an eternal life. In other words, God's saying in this revelation, bring your money. Build a house in my name so I can show, reveal, crown you and so that you can receive a new family identity, that you can receive a new way of seeing the world. Why is this idea of having a temple, having a new family identity through temple worship so important? Well, in the past, anciently in history, who you were, identity, was determined by bringing honor to your family, your clan, your nation. You see this a little bit in the movie Milan, right? Please bring honor to us. Please bring honor to us. Please bring honors to us all. You remember that? Or even in the Volsung saga, this old narrative, right? Sigmund works for years to avenge the death of his family. The strictness of this plan would help, it, help you more easily recognize your, your duty and to work within this duty. Your duty to rule, to fight, to serve, to farm... It was all very clear 
but it was also pretty prescriptive and limiting. Then the Savior comes to earth and teaches the importance of agency, that you could choose, that you weren't trapped by your culture or your past. And thank goodness for that. See, my grandfather immigrated to America from a very poor Balkan country. He barely escaped the tide of repressive communism to come here. And here, because he has choice, because he's not trapped by his past, he owned acres of land to build a comfortable home and a safe life. He sent his kids to college. And because of that, I'm raised safely in suburbia. Thank goodness for this ability to choose, to rise, and to grow. However, lately, this idea of choice and freedom has become unanchored from the steadying force of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I think it's become a monster of unreasonable expectation. Like, take, for instance, basically any Disney movie lately. The theme is more or less the same. Throw off the bondage of cultural expectation, discover your deepest dreams, and live them out to the fullest. Like, consider Elsa from Frozen belting out her declaration to let it go. Let go of what? Well, she says it. Let go of being the good girl you always have to be, that cultural expectation, right? Turn away on it, slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Notice I didn't sing that one. I just couldn't match it. But I have a couple questions about this. Like, let it go to what ends? Like, she seems when she's saying this, like she's creating a destiny to live alone in an ice palace with a golem snow monster for company. Seems not only misguided, but exceptionally selfish. Moreover, there's some real problems with this logic. First, it's impossible to create your own identity whole cloth. Family, friends, culture, TV, marketing, social media have a profound influence on our identity. We don't just come up with identity. We filter our feelings through the messages we receive from our culture and decide what is us and what's not us. For example, uh, Tim Keller gives this example. Imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in 8800. He has a very strong inner impulse for aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Living in a shame and honor culture uh, with a warrior ethic, he will filter those feelings through that, um, that lens and therefore he will identify with that, that feeling of aggression. He will say to himself, that's me, that's who I am and I will express that. Now imagine that same young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same inward impulse, equally strong, difficult to control. What will he say? Well, he'll look at his aggression and think, that's not who I want to be because he'll filter it through the lens of his society and his culture. And he'll seek deliverance in therapy and anger management program. We do not simply get our identity from within. We receive an interpretive moral grid lay it over our feelings and desires, and then we choose. So where do our Anglo-Saxon warrior and modern Manhattan man get their grids? From their culture, their communities, their heroic stories. They're not simply choosing to be themselves. They're filtering their feelings and jettisoning some of their feelings and embracing other aspects of their feelings. That's what it is. That's why this whole proclamation to discover your deepest dreams is so tricky. Or really, what I'm saying is that identity based on inner feelings is impossible. Uh, like, you, and just consider the fact that you really cannot, despite what our stories say today, you cannot bestow dignity on yourself. You can't just ultimately say, 
to yourself, I don't care that everyone I know thinks I'm a monster. Again, this is Timothy Keller. He's like, I love myself and that's all that matters. That would not convince us of our worth unless we were mentally unsound. You can't say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm me. We need somebody from the outside to say that we're of great worth. The greater the worth of the person telling us, the more powerful that recognition is to our identity formation. So if we try and authenticate and validate ourselves, we place ourselves in an infinite loop of delusion uh, that will either lead to narcissism or self-loathing. Dude, honestly, you've watched this. Like, It's amazing to watch people rebel and become so much like everybody else out there. It's crazy how much conformity there is in rebellion. Like, It's really hard. Uh, identify your deepest desires and live them out no matter what anybody says. Do you get how backward and lonely that is? It's such a subtle twist from Satan. It's also so confusing. Like, how do you tell what is your deepest real inner desire? One week you're really all in on this and the next week it changes and you're sincerely really all interested in something new. Which of these interests, drives, desires is the most valid, useful power and truly you? It's so hard. Our feelings shift and contradict. Our desires are rarely harmonious. That's why the temple is so important. The ordinances revealed in the temple show us a different path, a path I would tell you to true liberation, true uniqueness, and true power. Take, for example, the endowment ceremony. The endowment ceremony teaches that we're part of a family, that we're spiritual sons and daughters of an everlasting, powerful, and eternal mother and father. And because of the great love they have for us, they created this earth and birthed us into physical being in their eternal image. This is something powerful because we're made in the image of God. Our value is inherent. It comes simply because we're human and contingent. It reminds us how dependent we are upon God, not just upon ourselves. And it frees us. We no longer have to make our mark on the world to have value. We don't have to discover our dreams and live them out to have worth. We don't have to rebel against society to be different. You already have worth a deep abiding uniqueness of who you are as a son or daughter of God and a mission that is tailor-made just for you. The endowment ritual also shows you the deep limitations you have in trying to do things on your own. It helps us understand that we have all fallen short. We've all listened to the author of lies and betrayed our nature. It shows us how limited and screwed up we really are. The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. But the temple rituals also teach us that we're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Because we are so loved, our elder brother came to rescue us. And because of him, it's not a question of who am I? It's a question of whose am I? Build a house to my name. Be in me. Your worth is not earned. It is received, crowned, and given. And this frees us when we we understand this. We are given this identity and this work to put away our old way of being, our simplistic cultural narratives, and instead work on being divine, eternal beings. It's so so powerful. I think we see this transformation rather clearly in the experience of a man named Louis Zamperini. When he's a kid, he gets in trouble with cops for fighting and drinking. 
And uh, his parents don't know quite what to do with him. But then his older brother, who Louis really looks up to, introduces him to track. And now this is like 1930s America and track is much bigger than it, it is today. Like this is like people know the name of the fastest mile runners in America. And it turns out that Louis is like really good at this. He's just plain willing to suffer more than other people. Uh, he won the mile in the California State Championship and earned a scholarship to uh, USC, kind of an elite place. That same year, that he at the age of 19, he tries out for the Olympics. The, the mile race was stacked, so he completes in the, uh, competes in the 5,000-meter race, the, the three-mile track event. And it's basically in the middle of a heat wave in New York. 40 people die. It's so hot in New York. But he still runs. And he ties the American record holder and qualifies for the Olympics at the age of 19. It's crazy. He's still the youngest American to qualify in the 5,000 meters. And he goes over to to Germany, finishes eighth in the Olympics as a 19-year-old, and has an amazing experience, plans to finish college and run and do all these things. But... In 1941, he enlists in the Air Force to fight in World War II as a bombardier. Now, as he's flying, they have a a pretty tragic experience. On a search and rescue mission, their plane fails and crashes into the ocean 850 miles south of Oahu. Louis and two other crew members survive on this small dinghy, catching fish and birds and eating them raw. They fend off shark attacks. They fight sharks in the middle of the ocean. They survive storms. They're strafed by Zap- Japanese zero pilots. Like after, they, they survive on the open ocean for 47 days, catching fish, surviving, fighting sharks. It's amazing. And after 47 days, Louis and one other survivor washed up on a Marshall Island and are promptly taken captive by the Japanese Navy. Over the next two years, he suffers disease, exposure, starvation, and nearly daily beatings from guards. One particular guard, Matashoro, Matasuhiro Watanabe, sorry about that, they nicknamed the bird. He takes particular glee in just torturing this runner because he will not be broken. Pummeling him with fists, the, the metal end of his belt, threatening to kill him. On one occasion, having Zamperini hold up a heavy wooden beam above his head and threaten to shoot him if he drops it. On another occasion, he forced Zamperini and another American prisoner to punch each other until they, they were nearly knocked unconscious. But he survives. The power of his will is just overwhelming. He came home. He's a hero. He met and married a beautiful blonde named Cynthia. He was free and safe. But he wasn't. He was haunted by the torture and the beatings. And so he saw solace in alcohol. But no solace come. He, He just couldn't do it through force of will. This is a guy who fought sharks, who survived the open ocean for two months, who survived the torture and terror of prisoner of war camp in Japan, who was on track to break four minutes in the mile, and he couldn't do it. He came to believe that his only solution was to murder the man that tortured him if he could only go back and murder Watanabe, who had been set free, um, who, who suffers no consequence for his decisions. 
It's like I had nightmares every night. I couldn't get rid of it. Time wasn't healing his wounds. It was only making it worse. One night, Zamparini dreams he's strangling Watanabe, but instead he wakes up strangling his wife. He's scared. He's desperate. With her, wife, with her, her husband drinking every night, Zamparini's wife, Cynthia, files for divorce. After surviving so much, Zamparini is about to lose everything. And that's when a concerned neighbor invites Cynthia to come listen to a preacher named Billy Graham. And as she does, her life changes. She accepts Jesus Christ and she was changed. She wants, she wants to help Louis, but he wants nothing to do with Jesus. Where was Jesus when he was in the middle of the ocean? Where was Jesus when he was in Japan? But she no longer wants a divorce and that softens his heart a little bit. She invites him to go to a meeting um, with, with Pastor Graham and uh, he uh, agrees but once the prayer happens, he grabs his wife's arm and he bolts from the tent. He just feels so angry. He says to her in the car, don't ever get me back in that place again. But he just couldn't sleep that night. He had more nightmares. And so when she invites him to go back a second time, he agrees. But he's like, if he, he says to prayer, we're, pray, we're out of there. This time, Graham spoke about why Christians suffer. And why God seemed to allow such evil in the world. When the message ended, um, Billy Graham asked everybody to bow their heads and pray. And Louis gets up to, to leave. But as he, he shuffles out, he finds himself thinking about when he's sinking into the ocean in his planes. He's trapped by wires and then he's inexplicably freed from the wires. He remembers when the Japanese bomber swoops over the rafts and riddled him with bullets and not a single bullet had struck him. He remembers how he had fallen into unbearably cruel worlds, but born it. And as he thinks about it, he realizes that there's only one real explanation, one in which the impossible was possible. Um, Graham was saying that what, what God asks of men is his, their faith and that God's invisibility is the truest test of faith. To know who sees him, God makes himself unseen. And at that moment, he is just overcome. And he says to himself, what a heel I have been. He turns towards the prayer room. He falls on his knees and he says, the Holy Spirit came into my heart and I was changed forever. He's like, in that moment, I knew I was done. I forgave my guards in that moment. I was done smoking, drinking, chasing women. women. He says, that night, my nightmares stopped abruptly. It was like, it was the first time in years I'd never had a nightmare and I have never had a single one since. He dedicated the rest of his life to helping youth find Jesus Christ and overcome their difficulties. This is what I'm saying about identity. This is why God wants us to go to his holy house so that we see who we truly are and that we see ourselves through his eyes. I witness to you of the power of our Father and the love of his Son. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.